listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to... Oh, wait, hold on. Let me, let me back up again. Take two. <laughs> hey, everyone. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thank you for joining us for episode 243. Paige, you sound different. Well, uh, there's something I haven't told you yet, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Paige. <laughs> yeah, so everybody, Paige is not feeling well. She's totally fine. Jose decided, was was kind enough to step in and help uh, fill her shoes. So, Jose, real quickly, who are you? And let's talk real quick about your show on our network. Yeah, so I'm one of the newest podcast hosts for the Oil & Gas Global Network. I host the Energy Scale-Ups podcast where we talk about uh, companies and people that are solving problems for tomorrow's energy needs. Uh, but we also really get into how companies uh, in the energy sector, not just specifically oil and gas, but in different parts of energy like geothermal and, and uh, wind and other types like solar, how they scale up their businesses and as well as their stories and new technologies that are coming into those spaces and how they're going to help the energy sector uh, in the next chapter during the, you know, the, the transformation, right? So that's, that is like the main scope of what we do. And it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun and we have a great sponsor in Halliburton Labs and they've been really kind to us and generous in helping us get that show up and running. And so we're, we're really happy. And I think that it's been off to a great start. We're still under, I think we're right about 18, 19 episodes in right now, but it's been going really great. It has been an awesome show, and, and everybody will put a link in the show notes. If, if you haven't listened, go listen to the show. The other thing is uh, uh, you also served our great country, you know, so uh, you know, thank you for your service. It's um, it's really cool to have fellow service members as host <laughs> because if the <laughs> hits the fan, <laughs> we got it yeah. covered. Yeah, no, uh, for sure. I mean, it's kind of funny, you know, as I look out the window of my home office, I, you know, we have a service that brings flags around to, you know, uh, each of the homes, it's like the high school band or something like that. And we have flags lining up and down the street. It's really nice to see. It sort of reminds me of, you know, why I decided to serve our country. And, you know, it's such a great place and such great opportunities that have been given to us um, because of the sacrifices that service members way before you or I uh, made. And, uh, you know, I'm really grateful to have the uh, the opportunity to serve my country and to to, to live to tell about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the best part. Um, so yeah. it, this is just you know just a great addition to the team. Go check out his show, and we have a review sorta. You want to take a stab at this? You want me to run with it? Yeah, no. So we got a review from Rudolph, and it came in a few days back, and it says hi both. I guess he's meaning to you and Paige. Great podcast, and I am not picky with my podcast. Two observations. So he's got some observations, which is something I really like to get feedback because, you know, it's nice to be patted on the back, but it's always good to get a little bit of that constructive criticism and some feedback so we can figure out how we get better going forward, right? And he says, first, when you produce LNG, you don't compress it to make it liquid. You do that with LPG, by the way. LNG is cooled down by heat exchange, so it becomes a liquid, 
and resides in the storage tank a little or at little or no pressure. Mark said it's compressed into a liquid, which is not the case. Now that's his first critique. So a little bit of a technical change there. So a little bit of a technical critique, which is good because sometimes, you know, when we're in just the middle of conversation, sometimes we might misspeak about something. It's always good for our listeners to, to, to put us right back on course, which is great. And then the second uh, observation he has is LNG, which also is LNG. LNG truck trailer combinations have made, the mo- have made almost 1,000 miles on a single fill. Those tanks are a bit larger than the standard edition but they fit under a regular truck. If it is, if if this is what you read, if this is what you need, there is no range issue at all with LNG. You might confuse that with CNG. Also, NG engines have uh, can have great torque if they are not, or if they are not simply retrofits from diesel. So LNG is an outstanding fuel for all heavy horsepower applications. So big shout out to Rudolph for correcting me. I, he's absolutely right on all of this. And it took me a minute. So, you know, I've I've always known that there was a difference between compressed natural gas, that's CNG, LNG, which is liquefied natural gas, LPG, which is liquefied propane gas. But I never really thought about it being different other than it was different carbon atoms, right? So, uh, you know, one carbon atom is methane, two is ethane, three is propane, and so on. And so, uh, but I did some research because Rudolph uh, corrected me and he's absolutely right. So LNG is not compressed, it's chilled. And once it's chilled, it doesn't have a lot of pressure. That's why it doesn't want to evaporate as easily, which is really cool. Uh, CNG, compressed natural gas, is is compressed down to liquid and it's under high pressure. Um, and then obviously I was wrong about uh, the the power, uh, the, the the amount of power you can coax out of those fuels. It just you just need the right engine. Uh, so so Rudolph, thank you, thank you, thank you. And audience, anytime we make a mistake, please, please, please let us know. It's not just so that I can learn; it's so our audiences can learn. And we make a mistake, I want to make sure that we correct that. You know, e- either immediately or somewhere in the future. So Rudolph, super sincere, thank you for correcting this. All right, Jose, let's get in the news stories. All right, we're gonna jump right in. So. The first one we we came across this week is that there's been a significant onshore discovery in Perth, Australia. So this is actually really interesting. There's there's been multiple uh, uh, gas discoveries in the Australian continent for 50 years now. Um, this is uh, a new gas discovery, uh, and this is uh, onshore, and it's about it's a pretty deep well. It's about 13,000 feet, and they've made a pretty significant find. Um, it's also very interesting to see that um, at these type of depths, um, they're still doing wireline logging. And so they know exactly what they're they're getting themselves into. Now, this is a, a joint venture, I believe, Jose, isn't it? Isn't it it's a couple companies? Yeah, there, so uh, it's a JV, yeah, JV between uh, uh, Mineral Resources, which has 80%, and Northern Energy, which has 20%. Yeah. So, you know, big shout them for making this big natural gas discovery. It's, you know, because of Australia's close uh, approximation to Asia Pacific, um, they have a first stab to the a- Asia Pacific LNG market. Now that I got understand LNG, <laughs> right, because of, <laughs> because of Rudolph. And so, you know, we wish them much success. We we'll keep an eye on this. I got a feeling we're going to hear more from the story because they're, they're just starting uh, it, going into production. Um, and I, I, I got a feeling this is going to be a, a huge a natural gas producing a series of wells in a couple of years. That's right. 
And so next up, we've got, so India's Oil and Natural Gas Corporation is considering a stake, taking a stake in Woodside, in, or considering Woodside's stake in offshore Senegal. Yeah, and so Senegal is one of those many countries always get confused. They're they're in West Africa, if you're trying to figure out geographically where they are. Um, and it's actually a republic. And so uh, um, India's Oil and National India's um, Oil and Natural Gas Corporation has been working there for, for actually quite a while. And there's also several other companies, including uh, Woodside, that's out there working on this. And so it's um, it's cool to watch these companies realize ahead of time that there's a financial reward in, in the development of these projects and then wanting to come in and invest in it, not only so they can have access to the hydrocarbons for their own uses, but also so they can actually make a profit. And so they're in negotiations right now. Um, this is normal. Uh, you see this a lot. It also mitigates risk when you have multiple um, operators sharing a project, you're able to spread that risk out and also allows the multiple operators uh, to get the tax write-offs because, you know, certain parts and pieces of this investment are things that are would be considered research and development type work. And so you get to write that stuff off. So this is normal. It is cool to see a nationalized oil company like India's, uh, India's Oil and Natural Gas Corporation. I wish they'd name it backwards. But anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting to see them uh, jumping into this. And then once again, you know, this is another sign, another arrow that the world's consumption of hydrocarbons are there, right? It's um, it's companies like of this size don't make these type of huge capex investments in projects that take 10 years before you can start producing unless they think they can sell those hydrocarbons 10 years from now. I'm, I really, I got I'm a big fan of India in the last three or four years. Um, it's, it's, I, I really sincerely think they're going to pass up China, both in GDP and in population, probably in my lifetime. Um, they just need the ability to, to provide, reliable energy to its population and they're getting there they're getting much better at it so um, we'll keep an eye on this project as well yeah i mean some of those countries that are developing their technology haven't have the advantage of being able to sort of leapfrog technologies like when it comes to drilling because they don't necessarily have to go through the r d process they can bring in other companies or source technology from other companies in the more developed uh areas where they are you know drilling for uh, hydrocarbons and utilize those technologies in the country. So it, it's going to be really interesting to see them ramp up as fast as they can by utilizing these new technologies that are available to them and bringing them in because they are growing at you know pretty phenomenal rate. And the more people, obviously, then the more need you're going to have. And obviously, there's a, I mean, India's got a lot of people. They need a lot of energy. Yeah, I forgot, Jose. You actually kind of come from that downhole drilling research and development world a little bit, don't you? Yeah, so some of the companies that I've worked with and worked for have developed new types of technology, and you know, it's really interesting to see companies from different parts of the world, you know, be able to capitalize on that because you know they just don't have like if you're drilling, let's say for instance in Colombia or Mexico or some other place in the world that doesn't have the same amount of technology available to them, or they're not putting in the R and D dollars. They simply simply outsource that and say, okay, you know, we're going to just go find the companies that are developing this technology and utilize that versus having to, you know, reinvent the wheel ourselves, right? So it's really interesting to see. And like I said, you know, these countries, they have the ability to leapfrog technology. You know, if you think about it, in some places of Africa that have never used a landline, they've got cell phones, right? So they, they completely jumped 
you know, the need to have landlines, they went straight to, you know, I've got an, uh, you know, maybe not an iPhone, but maybe they got a flip phone or something, but that technology to have it right is, is pretty awesome. Yeah. And it's actually a great analogy because we grew into that technology slowly. So that's why we have miles of copper everywhere in the U S our landlines, as you call mm-hmm. it, but other countries, why, why go backwards? Why not just jump into what's current, which is wireless. It's also a cheaper install than burying millions of miles of fiber <laughs> and, and copper in the ground. So, um, and, and like I said, big fan of India, big fan of, of what they're doing in the hydrocarbon world. We'll keep an eye on this, this story as well. Yeah. Awesome. So next, next up, uh, we've got the world's largest plant capturing carbon from air starts in Iceland. So this is a carbon capture plant, and they're just kicking things off there in Iceland. So I've had this discussion with quite a few people, and they're they're always – you see the look on their face when the light bulb goes off. So a couple of things I want to talk about. So this is, I think this is awesome. Uh, Climeworks is a Swiss startup, like Jose said. Um, they're building a plant that's going to, looks like it's going to pull about 4,000 tons of CO2 per year out, out mm-hmm. of the atmosphere. Now that sounds like an incredible amount of CO2, 4,000 tons. But like everything, let's put it in perspective. So if we look at how much CO2 just China, so not the world, just China admits, right? So China admits about 15 billion tons of CO2. That's 15 billion tons. This project is going to pull out 4,000 tons. If you do the math, basically, if you look at an Olympic-sized swim pool, Jose, that's the amount of CO2 that China, just China admits. And the amount of CO2 that this project is going to pull out of the air is about three shot glasses. So that kind of gives you a, a point of reference. But let me tell you why this is really cool and really important. So one of the things that happens in the oil and gas industry is every reservoir, every conventional reservoir eventually runs out of pressure. So most oil and gas wells, when you first drill them, the reservoir is under enough pressure that everything comes out of the ground by itself. It's not just oil, trust me. It's sand and water and oil and gas and everything all mixed together. But as as those pressures decline, then you end up having to go use something like artificial lift. So something around 93 or 94% of all wells ever, ever drilled will at some point in their life cycle need artificial lift, which is basically man-made apparatuses to get those hydrocarbons out of the ground. Think of pumps and stuff like that. Right. So one of the interesting things, though, is that oil naturally has a viscosity and it's sticky. So it tends to want to stick to the rock and it tends to be thick. Depending on what the API weight is, it can be as thick as water or thick as pancake syrup or even thicker, like think of um, asphalt, right? Well, one of the things you can do is you can basically add energy to that oil in the reservoir. And there's several ways to do it. One of which is injecting CO2 into the ground. So you take a reservoir that is needs help getting the hydrocarbons out. If you inject CO2 in that reservoir, it adds energy to the oil, which decreases its viscosity and also makes it less sticky so it's easier to get out of the ground. So the cool thing about all these companies that are taking uh, atmospheric CO2 and then putting them in the ground, and when I say put them in the ground, they typically put them in depleted hydrocarbon reservoirs. The geology is almost perfect to store it um, because you have a cap rock, you have the porous rock to store the CO2. But what's going to happen is um, oil and gas companies, which right now have to buy CO2, now are going to be able to tap into the CO2 that's pulled out of the atmosphere to use um, for well stimulation. So, so not only is this great for the environment and, and, you know, regardless of what your beliefs are as far as 
the relationship between CO2 and uh, global warming, this is really cool because we're able to pull CO2 out the uh, out of the atmosphere, which can be measured, right? So if you want to be net carbon zero, all you do is pay this company to pull as many tons of CO2 out of the air as you admit. And now you're net carbon zero. But then that CO2 is used for other things, um, which is just good for everybody. So we have a bunch of these projects going on. There's one actually, Jose, they're getting ready to light up in the Permian, I think in November, um, mm-hmm. that Oxy is leading on. Um, so there's there's a whole bunch of these going on. I, I think these these things are awesome. My one caveat around this is I don't want people to think that we fixed any type of problem. So just by our ability to pull CO2 off the air, don't think that global warming is going to level out or disappear. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> but it's people doing the right thing, trying to do it right way. And at the same time, the byproduct is something that is commercially viable, which I think just think is good for everybody. Yeah, the one thing that I thought was interesting is that they mentioned that both uh, that this technology, that this plant is going to be powered by a renewable energy source from a nearby geothermal plant, which I thought was really interesting. How cool is that? For sure, for sure. All right. Yeah, but you know what? Where is this, Jose? It's in Iceland, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's there's only a few countries in the world that have the right geology to have a lot of geothermal. Which, by the way, uh, did you know that we have a, a geothermal engineer as part of our our team? Did not know this. So Joe Battier with our low carbon um, podcast, which literally just launched, is literally a geothermal engineer. Nice. Well, that was one of the first people that I had on my show. Is I had a geothermal expert uh, sort of give us give me a little bit of a like crash course in geothermal energy and the technology that's needed and the different type of plants. But I also had a gentleman that was part of another organization on the podcast that they take existing wells and they figure out how to convert them into geothermal wells. So there's a lot of need or there's a lot of opportunity in geothermal from converting old wells that are not really producing anymore to convert them to geothermal wells and make them profitable again. So I learned about geothermal. Listen to your show. Listen to your guests. Because <laughs> I, I always understood that the ground got hot and the deeper you drill, the hotter it was. What I never made the connection was you also have water and you also have to have enough flow. And so now at least at a high level, understand how it works thanks to your, thanks to your show. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, they, they pump these waters in like these closed loop systems and it creates steam that drives a turbine engine, which then generates power, which was something that I got educated on by geothermal experts, which was really helpful. And uh, I, it's, again, just an interesting note that, you know, they're, they're powering a carbon capture plant with geothermal energy. So it's really cool to see these combination of technologies combined to, to try and, you know, do a little bit of carbon capture, clean up the atmosphere. I just think it's awesome. What's For next? Sure. So next, we've got Enbridge buys Moda Ingleside Crude Export Terminal. So you may be thinking, why would Enbridge, which is a pipeline company, buy one of the largest export terminals in in the U.S., or maybe even in the world? I can't remember if it's, it's a very large uh, export terminal. Yeah, and the reason big. is... The reason is because it's a way for them to offload their product, right? So they can, instead of just moving uh, their product in a pipeline, they can now put it in a super tanker, actually very large super tankers, uh, and move it around the world. So it fits perfectly with Enbridge's strategy. It is going to be interesting to see what they do from an integration point of view. You know, uh, Enbridge is a great pipeline company. They don't have a whole lot of domain expertise around super large crude carriers. Um, and so they're buying a company that does so do they integrate these two or do they run like separate businesses i i don't know i think efficiency wise eventually they will need to integrate them but i think probably out the gate they're operate as two different uh 
uh, companies. Um, but I just, I just think this is a very strategic move at a time where things like LNG shipments are more and more important. I mean, the price of natural gas right now is crazy, uh, which is driving the, uh, the growth of, uh, the funny thing is actually driving the growth of renewables, Jose. When natural gas is cheap, it's hard for renewables to compete. But now that natural gas prices went up, uh, mm-hmm. it's actually uh, making it more cost-effective to run renewables. But LNG, the entire world is moving to LNG. Um, and this is just a, a great example of, of Enbridge looking ahead, figuring out how they can get into that market. And so this, you know, lo- love the fact. And by the way, anybody that in Enbridge or uh, Moda, uh, the old company. I would love to talk to y'all. I would love to bring a couple of our guys out and maybe do a podcast live. I've never been to a terminal this size. I, I just love to see it in person. So if you're listening, reach out. This is really interesting to me because it sort of takes me back to when we were having storage issues. I don't know if you remember this. I'm sure you probably oh, hell yeah. When we were having storage issues, when we had this, you know, obviously this great abundance of, of, of hydrocarbons that we just were figuring, we, we didn't have anywhere to store them. Um, there were companies that would, you know, they had all these ducks, right? These drilled, uncompleted wells because they didn't have anywhere to store the hydrocarbons. So I think this is a really interesting move that we would have a pipeline company buy a company like Moda uh, and have these tankers. I think to, to your question about how they integrate, well, being that I talk to a lot of companies that are scaling up, I always hear about, you know, different acquisitions and how this has happened and that's happened. And I think what they'll probably do, if I had to imagine on the business end, is they'll find areas where they can be more like they can optimize more where it be like accounting and, and other administrative areas. But on the technical areas, those will probably be the areas where they don't do a whole lot of moving. Uh, and then they'll slowly integrate as the companies move forward together. So I would think that that's how it would work out. They would probably figure out how can we be most efficient with our dollars. You know, accounting is accounting is accounting. Um, administrative is administrative, right? HR is HR. Um, yes, there are some nuances, but, you know, you can really hone in on key personnel to keep there and then figure out how you want to maybe move people to different areas and then, you know, how we can make this up because they have to make it a profitable uh, a venture moving forward. And so I'm sure they're going to spend a, a pretty decent penny you know, uh, picking up the company. So, you know, they have to figure out like, how do we, how do we make this profitable long-term? Darn dude. I should talk to you before we acquired women's offshore. I just bought this. I just bought it. (laughs) Our our integration was you're now part of the company. Go to work. (laughs) There you go. There you go. Awesome. What's next? next? We've got board drilling scores, more deals for jack-up fleets. I love jack-up rigs. I think they're so cool. Have you been to the museum in Galveston that's on the jack-up? I haven't been there, but I've been offshore enough times and seen them close up plenty of times, and and I've never got to jump on one, but I've seen I've seen them plenty of times. I think they're just they're so cool because you know the the legs go up and then they float, you know they 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 cruise out to their location, legs go down into the sea floor, jacks them up, and sometimes they'll connect to rigs that are already working and sort of you know do work on the side of them. And it's to me, it's like one of the one of the ultimate cool technologies of offshore that these jack-up rigs exist. And it's, they jack-up rigs have been around for a very long time before they had computer controls or anything. It was all manual hydraulics. But if you don't know what we're talking about, basically imagine a drilling platform that has legs that you can retract and it floats. <laughs> and so it floats like a boat until they're ready to drill. And then they extend the legs to the ocean floor and, and literally lift the entire um, um, infrastructure off the water, surface the water, and then have a top drive and they, they start drilling. Some of these jack-up rigs get really big. And if you're in the... Gulf Coast area in Galveston, there's a, a oil and gas museum 
um, that's actually on uh, built on a real jacket rig. So it's really cool if you ever want to go check it out. But the cool thing about this story is the fact that we're starting to see backlogs with drill rigs. So if you don't know how it works, um, you know, Shell and BP and Pemex, none of them own a drill rig. They have to rent them from somebody. And so and there's all different types of drill rigs out there. But the problem with the drill rigs for the last couple of years because of this uh, – crazy low crude price world we went through since basically 2015 is that there wasn't a lot of work for them. So there's a lot of competition for the jobs, for the awards. It drove day rates down, which drove profitability down. Most companies didn't have a backlog of work. Um, you saw a lot of mergers and acquisitions in that space because basically companies were going out of business. And what's yeah. cool about this one is uh, not only did Bohr uh, score some deals for its jackup fleet, they actually have more, they've actually been awarded more business than they can deliver, which is a backlog. And a backlog is a positive, good, wonderful thing in the oil and gas industry, especially in the in the rig operation world. So I just think it's cool they have a, a, a backlog of work. Um, you know, good luck to them. Uh, and it's just a nice uh, thumbs up sign for the industry as a whole. Yeah. And if you're if you're in the business of providing equipment to drilling rigs, whether it be drilling tools and things of that nature or personnel services, one of the things that I would recommend that you do, and this is something that I used to do when I was on the business development side, is I actually would go through and read the status reports, fleet reports. If you go to Bohr or if you go to some of the other drilling rigs like Diamond and the other ones uh, that have offshore rigs, they actually put out a, a, a fleet report that tells you where the rig's going to be. Typically, sometimes it's undisclosed who the operator is, but a lot of times if you know enough people, you can figure out who that's going to be and you can start to get in on the bid and tender process early, especially as you see new rigs being uh built because they'll they're going to have uh, usually like the rigs are built out in like um i want to say if it's korea uh korea super head. hot yeah. build rigs. They, yep. they build them out there off the top of my head that's that's what i remember but you know those rigs need a lot of equipment they need obviously people to run them so if you're in the business development side go read those fleet status reports i would try and read them you know typically at least once a month if not once a quarter if i if i was really bogged down but you find so much data, so much little information, and then just talk to people and you figure out like who's going to get this rig, who's going to get it next. And that's a great way to sort of, you know, chase the business, if you will, is, you know, you figure out, okay, well, maybe Pemex has it right now in, in Mexico with Talos or whoever, which we'll get to later. Uh, <laughs> that's a little preview. Um, or maybe, you know, Chevron will have it here and then maybe it'll go to Shell. And then so that's how you know you need to, to follow that rig and, and, get, and secure that business, especially if your company does a really great job for the one operator. If that rig goes to another operator, the people that are on the rig, they know your company, they know your reputation, they can recommend you to the operator. And that's a great way to, to, to build relationships and build up business at the same time. Where else but oil and gas this week do you get professional tips for business development guys for offshore? This is great. Good stuff, man. Good stuff. Well, I mean, you know, it's it's just the way – I mean, I, I didn't know this, you know, obviously going into it, but it was just something that you learn along the way, and it's just – it's a great way to, to figure out what's going to happen next. And, you know, like the show says, keep your finger on the pulse or else you're going to be out in the cold. <laughs> All right. You ready? Here we go. Yep. Democrats – Closing in on drilling mining bans for Biden's $3.5 trillion infrastructure scheme. I'm just going to shut up. I want to shut up too. That's not fair. <laughs> that <I have> to <laughs> talk. So, so this is, should not be a surprise to anybody. Um, no. This is basically our current administration um, um, 
um, voting and agreeing down party lines as far as how they treat the oil and gas industry here in the U.S., same way they treat the mining industry. Uh, they're basically trying to prevent new projects from being launched. Uh, they're trying to drive up the cost of hydrocarbon production in the U.S., um, and it's actually my, one of my biggest concerns is we'll never stop using hydrocarbons in this world, but we politically here in the U.S. could make it so expensive that we can't, it doesn't make sense to buy our own hydrocarbons and we have to start buying hydrocarbons outside the U.S. That's that's not where we want to go with this. But some of the stuff that's interesting that people don't think of, let's talk about, we, we mentioned earlier about different weights of crude. Let's talk about asphalt. So one of the things about uh, uh, Biden's infrastructure scheme is he's going to need about 100 million tons of asphalt for the roads and bridges and everything. Well, we can only produce about 30 million tons here in the U.S. And if anybody's curious, what's the raw feedstock for asphalt? It's crude oil. <laughs> so basically, <laughs> the Democrats are increasing the cost of the raw building blocks that they need to build this 3.5 trillion infrastructure. So they are increasing their own costs for the raw parts they need to build all these roads and bridges and schools and everything. Um, same way with the mining, um, you know, the restrictions on the mining. Now, don't get real worried about this. A lot of this is po political positioning. The states yeah. still have a lot of rights. Um, it, it is funny how much money and time that uh, our current administration is spending on banning drilling in the Arctic because, Jose, nobody wants to drill in the Arctic right now. <laughs> you know, it <laughs> Yeah. be like you and me banning um you know dvd rentals for movies well nobody rents dvd movies anymore for you know so it, it yeah. makes no sense so we, we, we have an eye on, yeah we have our eye on, on what's going on in our current political administration we'll keep a, a, a close you know watch on this we knew this sort of stuff was gonna happen we're gonna have more of this sort of stuff uh, happen uh, and it's just you know it's not good for our industry the only good thing about some of this stuff is i think a lot of my peers who uh, were not real politically involved. They just really kind of were sick of everything. I think it's gotten so bad that a lot of the people that didn't vote uh, or at a last election are, are actually going to vote this year, which would, which would be a great byproduct no matter how it turns out. It's really sad that here in the U.S. we have such a low voting turnout. So, um, sure. you know, it's our current administration doing what they said they were going to do, and we just have to make sure we, uh, we, we fight back in the ways that are appropriate. Yeah, I mean, that $3.5 trillion, that's a lot of money, right? And so if you're adding costs, right, that, then is that 3.5 still going to get you where you want to go, right? And that's, that's going to be a big problem. And then the other problem, and this is something that I learned about recently, was that not just, you know, the asphalt, but think about concrete, right? Concrete, you need, um, you need cement, or you need concrete, you need cement to make concrete, or concrete to make cement. No, you're right. It's cement, right? Right? So you need cement, sand, and gravel, and water to make concrete. Right. And so they are, there's a shortage and, and it's, you know, there's all of this, you know, cement that's going to be needed for roads and bridges and things of that nature. And that's getting even more expensive. So again, these are going to be a lot of logistical supply chain issues that they might be causing. Uh, and I say they, we really, I mean, our, in our country, you know, we're going to have some challenges and we, have, we really need to figure that out uh, before we, you know, start breaking ground and, and maybe run out of, run out of not money, but run out of material. You know, it's funny about that. I got one of my, my, my butt handed to me probably 20 years ago by a guy at Baker Hughes when I accidentally said, instead of cement in a well, I said concrete in a well. Oh my God. <laughs> I, did I get a, did I get a, a lecture. I felt like I was a freaking boot camp again. Um, that's why I know the difference because the guy yelled at me so much. It's like burned into my brain. 
Yeah, usually that it happens once or twice in, in throughout your career in the oil and gas industry. If somebody's not yelling at you, you're not doing enough. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Sad but true. It is very true. All right, on to the next one. Energy markets bet against nuclear as election nears in Japan. So, uh, Jose, what's your opinion on nuclear energy? You know, I'm I'm actually not afraid of it. I think a lot of people are really afraid of it. I grew up watching The Simpsons, and I know that Homer Simpson worked at a nuclear plant. I don't I don't think that we would have some of the same issues that he had, but I, I don't really fear it as much. I think because of some of the things that I've learned through talking to people in the energy industry, not just oil and gas, is that you know it's it's one of the probably cleaner ways to create energy, but it's just got a stigma. And when you look at other countries that have been able to build plants, right? And some of these plants were built off of uh, schematics that were built, you know, made in the 50s and 60s, right? If we were able to integrate new, proper, high-speed technology that we have today, put some of our best and brightest. I mean, we have people that come to this country just to do research and development in our universities. I'm sure we've got the ability to create um you know, nuclear facilities that would provide really uh, abundant sources of energy for us safely. Obviously, you know, energy in itself, working in the energy in the energy industry, especially oil and gas, you know, there's always a risk. There's so much, there's so many things that could go wrong. There's things that have gone wrong. I think just the stigma behind, you know, Chernobyl and things of that nature. I think people are just, you know, they're really scared of it, and they don't, they don't, they don't really want a nuclear plant in their backyard. And I can't say that I blame them, but at the same time, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of real estate, there's a lot of land in the United States. Maybe we find somewhere where, you know, it's not an eyesore or a concern for people. But again, I think that's going to be really hard to overcome. Yeah, it's um. So uh, n- nuclear is the safest. <laughs> cleanest way to produce electricity there is period unfortunately greenpeace in the 70s made the whole world think something was wrong with it and so you have stuff happens now japan's interesting because they had this tsunami that cracked the reactor um and that reactor even though it's shut down is still hot and when i say hot it's the uh, the nuclear fusion is still going at a slower rate so that happened about six years ago they're still to this day jose pumping a million tons of water a day to keep that reactor cool Right. And so that's, and when you live in an island like Japan, I get it. Right. You can't have something really horrible happen because there's nowhere for you to go. You're on an island. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is interesting. So the elections are getting near Japan. Uh, Their current prime minister stepped down after a year, which is uh, from a cultural point of view, unheard of in Japan. Typically the prime ministers have very long terms. Um, um, the current prime minister got a lot of bad flack from his handling of COVID. And quite frankly, I don't know any government to handle COVID well because nobody had done it before. There was no experience. So every government tried to do its best. Um, the 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 person that's probably going to replace him or at least run against him as far as the prime minister's position. Um, so he's very pro-renewable, very anti-nuclear. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I don't know if you've ever been to Japan, but the culture there is just radically different. But they do love Americans, um, and it is, it is just a, it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful country. Uh, let's see what happens to get through these elections. Um, it's it's I, I don't if 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 the new prime minister is definitely going to start shutting down nuclear plants, it is absolutely going to increase the amount of LNG Japan's going to need to actually keep the electricity in their grid for their population. So. You know, from an LNG point of view, this is good for the LNG providers and the guys that transport it. Uh, we'll see where their election goes. 
Yeah, Japan's a really interesting place. I've been there once for a very short period of time, a long, long time ago. And one of the things that I learned about Japan that I thought was really interesting, and it makes sense because if you go there, the, the culture and the people, they're, they're very much about um, the community, if you will. Like it, it's it's yeah. very community-centric. You know, uh, The things that are like culturally different, I mean, obviously the kids in school, they clean the school. There's no janitors. They clean the school. And it's, you know, it's sort of like a, I mean, you think about the times of the dynasties of samurai and they come from, I mean, that's, that's their culture, right? That's their history. I mean, they have a very strong work ethic and, you know, they're very much about, you know, not just them, you know, their families, but their communities and obviously the environment. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out for them. Yeah, it's um. You may not know this, but I started playing judo in high school, and my my most favorite sensei, most favorite instructor was a guy from Peru that lived at the Kodokan in Japan for twenty five years and studied judo in Japan. Which means that when I learned judo, I learned all the stuff. So to your point of cleaning the school in our our judo classes, we cleaned everything. There, everything was polished to a T, you know. And so it's um it teaches you humility, and at the same time, it also teaches you not to mess stuff up because you know you got to clean it up. Yeah, um, discipline. But, yeah, big fan of Japan. Let's hope their election goes the way that helps them the most. What's up next? All right. So coming back to one of my earlier comments, Talos. Local Houston Talos files notice of dispute regarding Zama, which was their project in Mexico, in the Gulf of Mexico on the Mexico side. Yeah, so basically Talos started this project and now that it's about to go in production, uh, Pemex, which is the, the nationalized oil company in Mexico, is going, you know what? We're going to say that we own this now. <laughs> yeah. <it's> like, <laughs> so I don't know, Jose, if you know this, but this is one of the reasons that uh, Mexico's had issues in the past is when they nationalized the oil fields, uh, they kicked everybody out, including all the American service companies. And so Mexico has an unbelievable amount of hydrocarbon reserves. They have they have the same shell plays that we have. They have conventional reserves. They have offshore reserves. Mm-hmm. The problem is they don't have the the technology and the engineering prowess to get it out the ground safely and and financially effectively, right? And so just a few years ago, the president changed the laws in Mexico and the Mexican people really were not happy with it, but they changed the laws so that there could be some ownership by outside people. Um, And that ownership, the reason they did that is so that companies like Schlumberger and Exxon, and in this case, Talos would come help them, which they did. Mm -hmm. So this is almost turning everything around backwards. This is what started everybody uh, leaving when they nationalized the oil fields is Pemex doing stuff like this. So I'm, I'm hoping there's more to this story or I hope they come to some resolution because I'm telling you right now, if they, if they take over a project, if they take over a project like they did with Talos and they do it a couple of times, nobody's going to work for them again. And they're going to be right back to where they were before, uh, where they're frantically building pipelines over the Texas state line so they can buy our natural gas, even though they have tons of it, so they can fuel their own electrical needs. So let's hope there's more to this project. Let's hope that, that this is some type of negotiation tactic. And, the, and when it comes out, Talos you know, gets to maintain ownership. Yeah. I mean, they would lose a whole lot of capabilities if they started to turn around what they, you know, turn around on their original intent of bringing outside private held, privately held companies into Mexico to help them. Because like you said, and like we talked about earlier, they're, they were able to increase their competitive advantage tremendously because they could utilize technology that they didn't have. Um, unfortunately, the way Pemex is structured, because it's ran by the Mexican government, uh, it just has a lot of bureaucracy within 
the company itself. It, they, it's really hard for them to get things pushed through. I mean, you ask almost any vendor that has done business with Pemex in Mexico, you know, sometimes it takes them a, a long time to pay you. And hey, that creates this? strains for, for businesses. Yeah, let's just be honest. It's corruption. Let, let's not dance. Yeah, the I don't want to use the C word, but you know, it's it is it is it is, and it's just a lot of you know, it's corruption, but it's just mismanagement too. And you know, almost like they use Pemex as the as the country's piggy bank sometimes, like Rob Peter to pay Paul, and that creates a lot of problems. Yeah, and the and the corruption, even though it's rampant, it's gotten better. But the 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 bottom line is the Mexican people have to not be okay with corruption until that happens. That corruption will stay in Pemex, um, and and you know it, it's it's just there there nobody wants to work with Pemex. So if you work for Pemex. Um, realize that most of the world doesn't want to work you. That's not good, <laughs> you know, and, and, and nothing against Pemex. I know some great people there. there there's a U.S. division of Pemex, which is great. We, we, we speak highly of how they market here in the U.S. Um, but stuff like this is what, what kills other companies wanting to work with you. And, and unless you have this outside help, you're not going to be able to get your hydrocarbons out of the ground. So just quit doing stuff like this. But like I said, this story is just starting. Let's see where it ends up. For all we know, it's a negotiation tactic. And it could be that when everything's settled, you know, everything's fair. We'll see. Yeah. Unfortunately, everything south of the border of us has had some issues here and there. I mean, they really need to take a page out of Equinor's book and figure out yep. how to run an NOC uh, correctly so that it does, it does you know, provide something for the people, right? That's what its original intent was, is that we're going to have- That's what it's supposed to be for, for exactly. the people. Exactly. So hopefully they can, they can get their stuff together because they would lose a lot of really good technology, a lot of really bright minds, because it's not just the, the, the tools, but the people, the engineers that they get, you know, they get so much great input from, you know, from our side, from different parts of the world. I mean, because it's not just American companies going there, it's companies from all over the world that go there to do business. Uh, so hopefully they can get it together because I would like to see it turn around. As our neighbor, uh, you know, you, you definitely want to see your neighbors do well. So hopefully they can get it together. Speaking of another NOC, French energy giant Total has signed a mega contracts with Iraq worth $27 billion to develop oil fields, natural gas, and crucial water projects. So they mentioned crucial water project. And most people think, oh, you're trying to figure out a way to get fresh water. Uh, to, so that people can have water to drink, so you can water your crops. That's not what they're talking about. So a lot of the Middle East is conventional reservoirs, and they have it really easy. Basically, if you pump a gallon of seawater into the ground, a gallon of oil comes out. The cost of that gallon of seawater is zero. Now, what's been happening, though, is they've been trying to use water that is not as doesn't have as high a salt content as natural seawater because some of that water evaporates which then increases the salinity in the reservoir which by the way people the reservoir already has high salinity water in it naturally so uh, this this deal they're working at total you know um iraq has a bunch of reservoirs because of warfare and strife, they have all their infrastructure is basically demolished. They don't have the engineering uh, expertise that they used to have, so they need outside help. So here's Total coming in with everything that Iraq needs. So Total is coming in with engineering expertise, coming in with capital, um, coming in with a global supply chain to help get these projects back up. And what Total wants is a piece of it. And what hopefully happens for the Iraqi people is that this money that will be generated is used to help rebuild their infrastructure, used to help rebuild schools, that sort of stuff. I don't want to get into the politics of Iraq because I'm getting mad. 
Um, <laughs> but but you know, here's Total doing what it does well, which is seeing a need in the in the industry somewhere and figuring out a place where they can use their their size and their scope to help. So we'll, once again, we're going to see what happens in Iraq with Total. Yeah, it it'll just. Uh, I think there. It sounds like they're still working out the you know the details. So I don't know that it'll actually come to fruition, but it looks like that they're really trying to get the projects underway. Yeah. What's next? So I saved the best for last because I thought this was kind of interesting. Bitcoin miners and oil and gas execs mingled at a secretive meetup in Houston. <laughs> so like you're that. so you're laughing. Let me tell you, I must have gotten a half a dozen texts and probably twenty or so uh, direct messages on Twitter about this while it was going on. I honestly didn't know anything about it. Not that I know everything that's going on, but usually I hear stuff. Um, so I think it's kind of cool they pulled it off. I don't know what the end result was, um, but if, if you don't know, if you mine Bitcoin, you're basically running uh, high-performance computers to solve complex mathematical problems. And every time you solve one, you earn a Bitcoin. And I know, no hate me, I know I'm making it oversimplified. And so the biggest cost of mining Bitcoins is electricity. And so the guys that that mine it are always looking for the cheapest electricity they can find. And some bright person, you know, a decade ago figured out that we were flaring gas. So basically taking natural gas and, and throwing it away into the atmosphere that they could use to run generator sets to mine Bitcoin. And so now you have multiple companies out there doing this sort of thing. Big shout out to Sergey Easy Blockchain. They're friends of OGGN. We're going to end up having a, uh, a Bitcoin mining a podcast uh, next year that they're going to end up sponsoring. They're one of the first ones that did it. And so I just think it's cool that a whole bunch of people that really only have one thing in common, which is generating revenue. So you have the oil and gas guys that, that want people to come in and take their flared gas. So they don't have to worry about it. You have the Bitcoin miners that are looking for ch the cheapest electricity as possible. And it looks like they had a really cool meeting. And Jose, did you see any of the pictures in the article? Did you see the, the museum with all the cars in it? That was the coolest part to me. It was almost like they had it in like a bat cave. Well, not a bat cave, but like a, you know, a car museum, right? Supercar museum with like all these awesome cars. And, you know, I mean, that alone is enough to get me in the door. But I mean, you know, obviously you add the, the, the added, hey, we can, you know, mine Bitcoin using flare off gas, which Sergey was, has been on the podcast on Energy Scale Up. So if you want to learn more, oh, awesome. go check it out. Uh, and, 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 and really interesting note, when I spoke to him, Bitcoin was close to its all-time high. And I asked him, I said, what do you think is going to happen with Bitcoin? He goes, I think it's going to go down to about 30. And it did, like a month later. No yeah, lie. He, uh, he knows more than anybody else I know. I don't know about you personally. I've not put anything into Bitcoin, but I do watch it. Um, and it is exciting at times. I mean, it's almost like a Hollywood blockbuster sometimes. Like, oh my, it's, everybody puts it down. All of a sudden, it comes out of nowhere. Then it goes up like dramatically. Then it drops dramatically. And a lot of people have made a lot of money. And a lot of people have lost a lot of money in it. Yeah. You know, I got, I got really I, – I, I say lucky because when I bought it was in 2020. And I sold it in 2020. And I sold it way earlier than I really should have, but I, I just knew like, okay, this is where it historically has been. And I was looking at it from an, from an investor's like long-term equity investor point of view, as far as, you know, understanding when to take profits, when to take money off the table, don't leave everything, you know, don't, don't let your profits go all the way down. Um, and I was able to make enough to where uh, I, I paid a nice little tax bill last year on my Bitcoin gains as well as the rest of my portfolio, because 2020 was just a great year to clean up. It was a great um, year. It really was. 
but you know what's really interesting is that China outlawed Bitcoin mining operations, which has now created such this huge gap because that's where most of the Bitcoin mining was happening was in China, and they outlawed it. And so now we've got even companies that are building facilities here in Texas that are going to be Bitcoin mining operations. We have people that are you know getting into oil and gas to to capitalize on the flare off gas. To mine Bitcoin. I mean, it's really interesting to see all of these things sort of come together. And as Bitcoin gets more, you know, accepted, and you know, you have companies like PayPal that will take Bitcoin. Uh, unfortunately, Coinbase. I just heard today, which is one of the bigger wallets exchanges that you can buy and sell Bitcoin on. They might be getting sued by the Securities Exchange Commission. They had they got a they got a letter uh, recently telling them like, hey, just a uh, uh, forward warning. Uh, we're probably going to sue you. So that's not great. Um, for some reasons, like sort of having like uh, where you could earn interest on accounts, which is like almost getting into banking. So it's big different regulations. Uh, but when you see things like happening like that, where China's outlawing it, but then countries, their sovereign funds start buying Bitcoin or selling Bitcoin. And then you've got obviously people tweeting like Elon Musk and other you know influencers that are you know driving prices left and right. And then, you know, uh, inflation, you know, is a big scare, and then printing money and you know quantitative easing, things like that. That really starts to play into the whole. I think we really have to look at it from a long term perspective. It's not going to go anywhere. People, people really like it. It's you know decentralized currency, you know, quote unquote, because I think there's there's still going to be. I think U.S. might create its own cryptocurrency versus saying Bitcoin is the standard. I don't think U.S. wants to release that sort of power uh, because the U.S. dollar is is the currency of business in the world. So it's going to be really interesting to see how things progress. And I, I'm really excited that it's it's in our world because I'm interested in it and it just gives me more, more uh, ideas as far as like what could happen in the future and, and how it's it's really, it's, it's, it's almost like thinking of the internet when that was, you know, coming, coming of age, a long time ago, right? You remember when they were handing out, uh, they would mail you hours, right? You could get online, like AOL online would mail you a DVD or disc that would give you so many hours online for free. And, and now, you know, then you had to pay for it for a long time. And now it's it was at 32 bits per second if you were lucky. And it wasn't a DVD, it was a CD. Yeah, <laughs> I remember right. those days well. Yeah, CD-ROM, that's right. Uh, yeah. I get them all mixed up. But it's, it's almost like reminding me of those days, you know, still really early in Bitcoin as far as in my mind. I know that people say early would have been probably, you know, 2017, 16. Uh, but I still think it's really early, and I think that it just hasn't hasn't really found its flow yet. Uh, speculation is something that you know the gamification of trading stocks and, and Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies has just been something that has been really big. Uh, that's why you see companies like Robinhood sort of getting their hands slapped because you know they're they're sort of encouraging some of this uh, casino type behavior. Like, oh, you know, if you put a hundred dollars into this one crypto, you know, in in Dogecoin or whatever, you could have made X amount of dollars, you know, whatever. And it's really speculative, highly speculative. But if you're going to invest in crypto, obviously Bitcoin is 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 the north star. Uh, probably right behind that, you have uh, the other one, which is Ethereum, which is really interesting. But those are the two that I really keep an eye on, but Bitcoin is definitely something that's super interesting. Well, the thing that's interesting to me is all the side hustles that are going on around cryptocurrency. So there's this company that makes these very small Bitcoin miners, and you literally 
can go into Starbucks, plug it in. It looks like you're charging your laptop and you're using Starbucks electricity to mine Bitcoins. I know that sounds dishonest, but isn't that very innovative to, to, to come up with something like that? You know, and so I just I, all the technology and all the, the the people that are thinking outside the box around cryptocurrency, I just think is awesome. And I agree with you. I think it's could turn into something really cool. It, it just has to grow up a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, what what people are doing, the innovation is is bringing down the barrier of entry, right? Because long ago, the barrier of entry was really high because, you know, if you wanted to trade stocks or mutual funds or bonds or whatever it might be, you sort of had to know what you were doing. And now it's, you know, the barrier of entry has been brought down. I mean, you can buy fractions of a Bitcoin. You don't have to go spend forty-eight or $50,000, whatever it is today to buy one Bitcoin. You can buy a fraction of a Bitcoin. So you get in the game, you can dollar cost average in at $100 a week if you wanted to, and you're, you're in the game, you know, so it gets everybody involved, which I think increases adoption rates faster. I think the problem is that people just don't understand it well enough to be able to make an educated decision as where I want to put the, if I want to put, put dollars in. I think looking at it from an invested point of view, yes, is it speculation? Yes, is there risk? There's risk with every single investment that you make. So don't put all of your portfolio in it, but maybe buy a little bit of it so that if it does take off, you've got that, you know, you've got that jet fuel on your portfolio. You can, you can capitalize on it. And just remember, these are suggestions. We are not certified financial advisors. Do not take our investment advice seriously. Yeah, but this what is just, sh- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, you sh- what you should take seriously is things like our free day passes at the Canon. So Canon's a partner here in Houston. It's where we do all our happy hours. Uh, if you're looking for a co-working place, go check them out. But for our listeners who are doing something really cool, if you want a free day pass to get away from your wife or your husband or your boss or whatever, and want to go work somewhere else for a day, just go to the Canon, walk up to the front desk, say that you're a listener of OGGN and Jose, they give you a free desk pass. And they're not going to even try to sell you anything. So really cool deal for our listeners. I love the Canon. Uh, I've actually been there a few times to not only record podcasts, but have meetings and obviously go to events. It's such a great place and they have multiple locations around the city. It's really convenient. Definitely go check them out. Also, grab your IBM t-shirt. So sign up uh, for your chance to win an an IBM t-shirt that is unique with a serial number. So that means every one of these shirts is going to be different, makes it collector's item. Plus, it comes inside an official OGGN insulated tumbler. So if you like to have your coffee and you want to keep it warm, that OGGN tumbler is going to do that for you. And at the end of the year, we're going to be having a drawing to win our grand prize. Uh, and this will be the pool of serial numbers on the T-shirt. So if you don't have a T-shirt, you can't get in the, the drawing. And the grand prize will be announced a little bit later in the year. So, Jose, I bet even you don't have an OGG and insulated tumbler, do you? No. And you work here. I know. <laughs> yeah, so super, super cool stuff because it's for our listeners. Yeah. Um, tell you what I else is for our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> actually, that's how Jose became a host. It's actually, uh, audience, believe it or not, tell most of our hosts started the relationship with OGN as they were listeners. So, if you're yeah, a listener, was- something may cool may happen to you. Yeah, I was driving around West Texas uh, one summer and listening to like all of your episodes. And this is just, I think when you just had this show, Oil and Gas This Week, and it was you and Jake. And I listened to a bunch of them because, you know, when you're driving around West Texas, what else are you going to do? Because you can't really get any radio stations. Um, but it was really awesome because that's how we connected. And I went to a chili cook-off and met you there. It was really great. That was a long time ago. <laughs> oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Speaking of stuff that was a long time ago, <laughs> that's not a good segue, but anyway, leaving it anyway. <laughs> so Jose, what's the weekly rig count doing? 
Weekly Rick Count this week is 497. So we are down 11. Yeah, not a good trend, but let's hope it's not a trend. We'll, we'll revisit this next week. Then go to LinkedIn audience. Just type in OGGN and join everything since Paige is not here to correct me. Um, number one thing is is our, our company page. The other thing is though, jo- go join our street team. It's our all-volunteer group. We're doing some really cool stuff. Uh, we're going to have a change in leadership. Um, Jose, we have a committee on our street team that is reading pro oil and gas books to elementary school kids. How cool is that? Man, that's awesome. You got to get them while they're young. Yeah. So if you want to help us, go join. Cost you nothing. And then while you're online, uh, go to the website. Either go to OGGN.com where you can hear this podcast and our 14 other podcasts or just go to OilandGasThisWeek.com. If you go, you know about First Friday Q&A. It's where you leave a question. And if we read your question on the air, you get a big shout out. That's coming up pretty soon. So if you have any questions, uh, let us know for that. And then if you want myself, Jose, or any of our other experts to speak at your event, reach out. Be happy to share the details. Our speaking engagements have picked up dramatically. Uh, wait to see what happens with this Delta variety of the, the COVID virus. Um, but we'll be safe no matter what. And then I, uh, I just talked about First Friday Q&A. So please, people, submit your questions. Jose, this has been an honor. Thank you so much for stepping in to help and love the fact that you join us. Uh, real quick, once again, if people want to find your show, what's where is it and what is it called? Yeah, it's called Energy Scale-Ups Podcast, The Energy Scale-Ups Podcast. You can find it on Apple and Spotify, wherever you pretty much listen to your uh, podcast at. Definitely check it out. I uh, would love to you know, have new listeners as, as well as feedback. If you hear the show and you have any sort of uh, feedback that you'd like to give, please share and Jose, you're also still looking for guests, right? So if you're a company that is right past that startup stage and would like a little exposure for free, reach out to Jose. Absolutely. Please connect with me. My email address is jose.solis at OGGN.com. Drop me an email. We'll put some time on the books to figure out if it's a good fit and get you on the show. All right, Jose, you ready to get out of here? Let's do it. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Cheers. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.